Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful and kindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your spirit and they shall be created and you shall renew the face of the earth. Amen. So, Grace is Not a Blue-Eyed Blonde. That's the title of a book written quite a few years ago by Eugene Rollins, who was a Christian counselor and author. It's okay. We already know that the grace to which we're referring here is not a blue-eyed blonde. But what is grace exactly? It's one of those slippery words sometimes hard to pin down in exact meaning which was the reason for Dr. Rollins' book. Now, suppose you were taking a Christian literacy test, and one of the answers requested was, define grace. What would you say? And persons who've attended seminary need not respond to this. (laughs) Now, we could say that we appreciate a gracious person, imagining someone who's well-mannered and kind, and reasoned in thought and speech. That person always seems to have a ready smile, who possesses the gift of good listening, and is ready to offer the perfect word of encouragement at just the right time. Or, is grace simply about being nice, or forgiving, or in a more modern take, being more tolerant and accepting of different beliefs and lifestyles? Paul of Tarsus has some definite ideas about grace about what it is and how it plays out in the world in his letter to the Romans we hear today. In fact, he offers a blueprint of how living a life of grace works. And never being one to mince words, Paul hits us with the good news right up front. As he says, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So the first necessary step on this road to a life in grace is recognizing that we're a forgiven people, free of the bonds of a broken world and from the laws of sin and death. Seems unbelievable, too good to be true, but there it is. Second, our new life is in the spirit. Paul continues. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. Paul tells us we're to set our minds on higher and holier things. Amid our beautiful and messy life on this earth, Our internal and external communion with God through Christ, empowered by the indwelling Spirit, strengthens and sustains us. Our new life is a life of peace and joy, if only we allow it to be so. But then comes a warning from Paul. He says, For this reason the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now a comment here. Flesh in the sense that Paul is speaking means the way of the world. Not a a reference to a basic sinfulness of our God-created mortal bodies. These verses have been misused over the centuries to justify all sorts of questionable practices. Medieval monks who mortified their bodies with whips and chains is an example 
of the flesh, misused in the sense of a sinful body. But the real sense Paul is speaking of to the Romans is the internal conflict between the desires of our human nature and the ways of God. Paul himself spoke of this internal struggle in Romans chapter 7 that we heard last week. He tells us, I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree that the law is good. But in fact, it is no longer I that do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells within me, that is, in my flesh. Sin in this context is that which separates us from God and from each other. And again, hearing the word flesh, think of the temptations of the world. But then Paul outlines the way forward as it continues. But if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. It is the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. He who raised Christ from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies also through his spirit that dwells in you. So we invite the Holy Spirit in and allow the transformative power to dwell in us, to enrich our lives, and to fill our hearts and minds. So those are the workings of grace according to Paul's letter to the Romans, in theory at least. Now, I'm not from Missouri, but I did live there for a while. So you have to show me some of the time. So how does this grace thing work out in the real world? For a deacon and a Franciscan, I think that's a question that needs some answers. So here are a couple of examples that came to mind, the workings of which have had an impact on my life. So sometime in 1934, a young man stood in front of a group of his peers and began by saying, Hi, my name is Bill W. and I'm an alcoholic. This man had been in and out of treatment facilities for his chronic alcoholism with no effect. He lost jobs. He was unemployable due to his drinking. His family was estranged. He was told by a treating physician that if he continued drinking, the only outcome was death our commitment to a sanitarium. In a fit of desperation, Bill cried out to God for help. And in his telling, he experienced God's close presence and a sense of peace and had his compulsion to drink removed then and there. He was led to share his experience with a group of friends who were also struggling with alcoholism. Bill's peers were originally known as the Oxford Group and this initial gathering marked the inception of Alcoholics Anonymous and the forerunner of many variations of 12-step programs. 12-step programs use a spiritually based method to assist addicted persons to recover from the ravages of alcohol, drugs, gambling, overeating, and so forth, and to lead them into more healthy and productive lives. 12 steps go something like this. Admitting that one cannot control one's alcoholism, addiction, or compulsion. Or in other words, I'm human and I need help. Coming to believe in a higher power, whom we call God, that can give strength. Or in other words, accepting God's grace 
and letting the Holy Spirit come in. Examining past errors with the help of a sponsor who would be an experienced AA member. We call this in our church an examination of conscience. Then we make amends for these errors where possible. And to us, that's reconciliation, our confession and absolution. We have a sacrament for that, including past, righting past wrongs, except where to do so would harm others. Then learning to live life with a new code of behavior. For us, the Ten Commandments are a pretty good code of behavior, along with the urgings of the Holy Spirit. And to the addicted person, a simple, I will not drink, gamble, use drugs, or overeat for today. And then, helping others who suffer from the same alcoholism, addictions, or compulsions. Or, we share the gift of grace through helping others. Now, it's miraculous to think of the lives saved, the families held together, jobs kept, and countless persons turned from a path of self-destruction to clean, sober, and upright living. And credit that to Bill Wilson and his friends, who so many years ago picked up God's gift of grace, allowed it to transform their lives, and then used it to help others break the bonds of addiction. That is some real grace in action. Another story, and this is my favorite preacher's prone to say, I will land this airplane. In 1725 in a suburb of London, John Newton was born into a middle-class family. His father was involved in merchant shipping, and his mother died when John was very young. He was raised for the next few years by an uninvolved stepmother and was sent away to boarding school where he was mistreated by the other boys. At the age of 11, he went to sea with his father, taking up a seagoing career in which he was known for rebellionness and disobedience. He was shipwrecked on more than one occasion. For bad behavior, he was marooned by his shipmates in Sierra Leone, where he was enslaved by the locals for a time. His offenses even reached the level he was pressed into service in the Royal Navy. That is, until he deserted. The captain of a ship he served on deemed him the most profane man he had ever known, which is remarkable considering we're talking about sailors here. And oh, then he became a slave trader. Now on a later voyage, Newton's ship was beset by a fierce storm. The ship began filling with water and was in imminent danger of capsizing. To avoid being washed overboard, Newton and a shipmate lashed themselves to the ship's pump for several hours to empty the ship of water. Later, he steered the ship through the storm for many hours alone. Finally, after several days, the battered ship and the starving crew came ashore in Ireland. To shorten the long story, Newton points to this near-fatal experience as the beginning of his conversion. His prayer during the long ordeal was, Lord, have mercy upon us. And the prayer was answered. But he pondered. Was he worthy of God's grace? Was he really worth saving? Soon after, he married a young lady with whom he had corresponded. His seafaring life ended, and he settled down. He began to teach himself theology, Greek, Latin, and he devoted himself to the scriptures. He wrote about his experiences as sailor and slave trader 
and of his conversion. His faith grew, and he came to be possessed of such a fervor for the gospel that he was encouraged to become a priest by no less a person than John Wesley. He was ordained a priest in our own Anglican tradition, and in 1762, he was given a curacy in the town of Olney, just north of London. Now, it was expected in those days for clerics to write hymns and verses for the benefit of our parishioners, of their parishioners, as aids in internalizing the gospel message. So what do you think, Lisa? That's something we should try maybe? Mm. Hymns, verses, okay. <laughs> but in any event, and with some help, John Newton wrote hymns. And one of the hymns he penned goes like this. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Does it sound familiar? Amazing Grace was published in 1779, and it is truly amazing, there's that word again, to think of the impact this hymn has had through 250 years. How many spirits inspired? How many lives changed? Due to one man who chose to accept God's grace, freely given, to invite in the Holy Spirit, and who was inspired to share his gift with the world. It's his grace that brought us safe thus far, and grace will lead us home. So what is my takeaway from all this? Well, I believe that grace is a process that begins with the acceptance that we're forgiven by God as we forgive others and we forgive ourselves. This house cleaning leaves room for us to invite the indwelling Holy Spirit in our being and to bring us into more intimate communion with God through Christ. With our minds set on higher and holier things, grace flows. And when we share with others, miracles can happen. I think we should never underestimate the impact that our acts of kindness and our sharing of our faith has on others. Consider, do you suppose that Bill Wilson had any inkling in those early AA meetings that Alcoholics Anonymous would grow to today's number of some 115,000 groups worldwide. Or imagine if John Newton penned the words of his faith and conversion as amazing grace. Did he have any idea that it would stand through the centuries as perhaps the best loved Christian hymn? I would say probably not on both counts. You see, grace really is amazing. Let me end with this. You remember a few moments ago I mentioned that 18th century Anglican clergy were expected to write verses for the edification of their listeners. So yes, I did. And I beg your forgiveness for this, and I may need absolution afterward, but here goes a limerick. There once was a man who was lost. His soul needed a cost. But God's grace came down and turned his life around, and now he's found and no longer tossed. Now, brothers and sisters, that may be bad poetry, but it's good theology. <laughs> and it is good news indeed. Amen.